You know, the title of my sermon this morning is Repentance, Stop and Be Holy. My text is the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. That, of course, is printed in the New King James in your handouts together with the sermon outline in the back for your easy reference. And walk with me, as I always do, through Psalm 1914. And so, dear Lord, this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. By way of emphasis, when when we deliver sermons, I'm only concerned with his view. As long as it is his word, I'm good with that. Amen? Well, let's consider first the Gospel of John. Let's, Let's read that in the New King James Version. And it reads, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This, they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, and he saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. In other words, go and live a life of holiness, a life of repentance. Amen? Well, this story, this is without question the most tender and sensitive story in the New Testament. And I want you to feel with me the sensitivity, the embarrassment, and the humiliation of this woman Now we can agree that she had committed a terrible sin and she was walked in on and discovered embarrassed and naked with a man in the very middle of the act of adultery. I don't think they give her time to get dressed. They surely didn't care about her. You don't find one suggestion in this passage that there was sensitivity to this woman except on Jesus' part. All they cared about was a chance to make a theological football out of her and trap Jesus with one of those impossible questions and situations they had supposed he couldn't get out of. You know, the law that Jesus said he came to fulfill said, stone her to death. And the message which he had been preaching was love, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. How could Jesus harmonize the law and grace. I want you to, for one sensitive moment, I want you to imagine that you are that woman. 
I want you to imagine that you are being dragged and flung down before Jesus. I want you to feel the 180 degree difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. Well, first, we're not surprised that it was the Pharisees that brought her. Pharisees that didn't care about her. Pharisees that embarrassed her. You know, she had never been used sexually by any man like she was going to be used theologically by these Pharisees who were trying to make a point. I raise a question. These are my own thoughts, not referenced in our text. Was it early in the morning? How is it that these Pharisees could stumble in on her? Was the man who found her her husband? It seems to have been the Pharisees. Now, people commit such sins behind closed doors, don't they? How did they know where she was? And I imagine this but had been the last of several flings through the night, so perhaps she was a prostitute. I think that's the case. Because they knew where she was, and the only way they might have known where she was is if some of them had used her services. I would not suggest in a million years that the Pharisees, who prided themselves in the external, would not have committed adultery themselves. Another thing, what happened to the man? Why is he not embarrassed humiliated, and dragged and flung in front of Jesus? Well, I think the reason is obvious. You put together two things, and here's what you get. Again, my own thoughts, not referenced in our text. But I believe that some Pharisees, protecting a brother Pharisee, knew right where she was, and they went to get her. The entire scenario was a set up to trap Jesus and to humiliate a woman. Now, Jesus did not condemn her, but he also didn't condone her sin. He was furious with the Pharisees, and Jesus found himself in one of those render unto Caesar and unto God kind of impossible situations that the Pharisees loved to come up with to try to trap Jesus, to convince the people that he was not the Son of God. Well, our text states that Jesus stooped down and started to write in the sand. And immediately they gathered around and began to peer over his shoulder. What's he saying? What's he doing? What is he writing? My own thoughts. I think that he wrote the seventh commandment. Thou shall not commit adultery. You see, Jesus never compromised on sin, but he was always very tender with a sinner. And having written the first time, he then looked up and he spoke and he said, those who are without sin cast the first stone. Seventh commandment? Perhaps. And then he leaned back over and wrote a second time. And what he wrote the second time so convicted them that in their humiliation they turned and started to walk out from their embarrassment. Therefore, I also believe that it is quite possible that Jesus looked around at the Pharisees 
and started jotting down names in the sand of those who had had a relationship with this woman. Remember, he's still God in the flesh, and he could name them by name even though they had never told him. Those who are without sin cast. So they began to turn and walk away. Jesus didn't ask her to confess her sin. He just said, where are your accusers? And in that moment of grace, the light of all heaven came, and she realized she was free. How could Jesus free people by just announcing them free? Because he saw into her soul. And before she said a word, he knew the brokenness that she suffered in her heart, and he helped her to her feet. I always thought that perhaps he covered her with his own tunic and said, just don't do it anymore. Go thy way and sin no more. The golden word, the most important thing that you will ever experience in your life is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful release and relief that all is well. You know, the joy of knowing that your case has been settled out of court, dismissed by the master, is a joy unspeakable. To know that your debt has been paid, the case thrown out of court, and you are free, free at last, is simply golden. Again, our verse 11 states, And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, repent. Be holy. And so first thing your outlines consider that repentance is more than admitting sin. Repentance is the only key to forgiveness. You know, the most important thing that a pastor can do for a congregation is to try to teach his people how to know the forgiveness of God. So remember this. It comes in one word, repentance. And that is the only thing he told her to do. Now, if you don't hear anything else this morning, repentance and forgiveness are inseparable. That's the key. The golden key. Everything that God wants for you is wrapped up in holiness and forgiveness. In other words, repentance and forgiveness. And so through repentance, through forgiveness, your burdens are lifted. Burdens that affect your mind, your heart, your soul, your family, your wife, your children. Listen, everything deteriorates because of sin. And it's so easy to deal with. Stop. Be holy. Second in your outline, consider that repentance is more than confessing sin. I want you to understand that it is not simply confessing sin. Naming your sin is not the same as leaving your sin. You can take out an ad in the newspaper, a full-page ad that says, I, Bill Smith, did so-and-so and you will not feel one bit of relief from the burden and no release from the guilt of sin. Also, confession of sin can be prideful. I was in a service at one time, I'm sure some of you have been as well, and a man got it in his mind. 
that it was his sin that was blocking the blessings of God on the church. And the more he thought about that, the more the devil used it to make him think that he was so important. And he was actually looking forward to this public acknowledgement of his sin. And when he did it, it was done so boastfully, so pridefully, that a chill came across the church. And what God had started was shut down immediately. Public confession can be useful, but confession can be wrong. Confession can be prideful. It can be self-centered, and it can be intended to draw attention to yourself. And how many times have we Christians done this? Hey, did you know what so-and-so did? Did you, you want me to tell you what he did? And then you and I can pray for him. That is really gossiping. It's just a cover, an excuse to say something exciting. That is wrong. Listen, confession should be done personally to God in the heart with purity and sincerity. And as important as confession and as wonderful as it is, it's not repentance. Confession moves the lips. Repentance moves the heart. Remember Saul? Saul presumed on God and offered a sacrifice as king to be offered only by a priest. And he was not a priest. And so when he came back and Samuel told him, you're in a mess, he said, okay, okay, I I did it. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And then Samuel walked him out in front of the congregation. And Saul went with him as if everything was okay, as if everything was the same. That's what Samuel said to him, you hypocrite. God has taken your kingdom and ripped it from you and has given it to a man who's after his own heart. God wanted you to be king forever, but no way now. Why? Because he did not confess properly. 30-year-old line, consider that repentance is more than a change of mind. <clears throat> repentance is not simply a change of mind. And I want you to understand this clearly. Changing your mind is the first step to repentance. It is included in the, in, in the act of repentance. But simply changing your mind is not the same as changing behavior and is therefore not biblical. Biblical repentance is three words. Stop. Be holy. Remember the Pharisees? You remember that they changed their mind about John the Baptist, so much so that they were willing to take that long walk and even accept being baptized. And then John the Baptist said, wait a minute. I don't see any fruits from a changed mind. I don't see any evidence of repentance. Let's see something different in your behavior. And they turned and walked away. And he said to them, you generation of vipers. That's French for you barrel of rattlesnakes. And Jesus said that the Pharisees were like beautiful white gravestones on the outside, but full of dead man's bones on the inside. Real repentance begins with a changed mind. But listen, 
It is a change of attitude that leads to a change in behavior. And if it doesn't do that, simply changing your mind about something only makes you twice as guilty because now you are doubly convinced that what you are doing is wrong. But you keep doing it anyway. Changing your mind is not repentance. It is the beginning of repentance. Fourth in your all, I consider that repentance is more than being sorry for your sin. Emotional heartache, being sorry, having guilt and depression is not repentance. I know people, you know people who have come to the altar and they're, and they're praying and they're praying and praying and tears are flowing. They are so sorry for what they did. But they find themselves still doing it. Sorrow is not repentance. Scripture says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It is another step toward repentance, but you're not there yet. Until what? Stop and be holy. Everything, everything in the goodness of God that you have and long for and want to know and know as promised is contingent upon the full presence of the Spirit of God creating Jesus in your life with nothing between the Master and you. And when you blow it and you sin, you've got to have his forgiveness to stay in in that state. And the key is stop. Be holy. Repentance. Fifth, in your outline, consider that repentance is more than regret over the consequences for sin. Repentance is not regret over the consequences or fear of reprisal because of your sin. Biblical repentance is more than that. For example, listen, boy, I better repent or I'll get it. Somebody's going to find out I'm going to get nailed or I'm going to pay a dear price. So therefore, because of what might happen, I'm going to do better. Repentance is also not feeling bad or rather feeling bad about what happened when sin is found out. I find people who get arrested and caught in the act, they have a tendency to make a jailhouse confession. That act doesn't change their future behavior. It's not real repentance. Repentance is more than fear about what could happen to you because of your sin. Repentance means stop sinning. Be holy. Now listen carefully. This can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit can give you the power to do that. You must be saved. Repentance flows from salvation, not the cause of it. And now listen to number six in your outline. Consider that repentance is more than stopping the act. You know, repentance is not simply stopping the act of that sin. Let me explain. It isn't enough to just stop. Repentance is also stopping with a disdain for that sin. 
I want you to consider a man that at one time in his life committed adultery. He stopped doing it. And for the next 50 years in his, in his life, until he dies, he never does it again. Now only God knows this. But he has never gotten over the ecstasy of the moment. The sweet taste of the forbidden fruit. He's played it over and over in his mind throughout the years. Now there are some of you who are dealing with things you don't do anymore, but you still love far too much what you did. And you replay it in your mind. You enjoy the nectar and wish that you could do it again. You know, repentance is allowing God to cleanse us in his blood and to take out of our soul, our conscience, and our psyche any joy that Satan desires would reside in our heart or mind from past sin. That's holiness. Seventh thing, your outline, consider that repentance is not stopping one sin for another. Repentance is not just stopping a kind of sin for another. Here's the scenario that, that I play out. Two or three habits will become besetting sins in a person's life. One is particularly rough, and that person finally gets the grace to quit doing that. He determines that he's never going to do that again, but now he gets a little bit of relief. His conscience is kind of relaxed, and it's easier for him to compromise and settle in on another of the, of the sins that he has. And lastly, and the key here, number eight, considering your outline that repentance must must be for the love of God. You know, repentance to be genuine must not be for the love of blessings or the expectation of blessings or for the love of family. A person may know that the sin is affecting his family, but he cannot repent in the hope that God will give him restoration, in the hope that God will somehow restore him financially. You cannot repent because your pastor has suggested it. You cannot repent because your spouse wants you to. It's got to be for the love of God that you repent. You have to realize that you have offended God. And when you determine to stop sinning because of that, you are really beginning to repent truly. You know, repentance always precedes blessings. People who come clean before God, they become pure and they become holy and they make the effort to walk in purity and holiness, not to get blessings. That is God's response to your repentance. When Joshua brought the people to the Holy Land, he told them to sanctify themselves. He told them to cleanse themselves of sin. He told them to repent, be holy, and stop sinning. Repentance always goes before God's blessings. And in conclusion, I think everyone here can remember the last words of Jesus. He told his disciples to go into all of the world and preach the gospel. But do you remember the first words that Jesus said? He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He told them to repent because blessings were just around the corner. Well, God has blessings just waiting for the man, the woman, the home, the couple, or the church that will really repent 
Some say, that's easy, just stop doing it. Yes and no. Now I believe that Jesus in our text told a brand new Christian who had been caught in the very act of sin to go and sin no more, to be holy. And I believe that because of her new relationship to Jesus, she could stop sinning. She could live a life of holiness if only she would rely on the power that he has and not on her own. We sang, yet not I, but Christ, through Christ who lives in me. Listen, Jesus Christ is in you. If every one of us should say, Lord, I can't, but you can, we can all have victory over our sin and blessings in our lives. Just remember the great truth. Greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. Amen? Well, service is over. Let's just go out this week and spend a little reflective time in quiet moments with our Lord and conduct a self-examination. Don't examine anyone else. Self-examination. Deal with your issues Get it right with God. Come back next Sunday and be on fire. I'll see you next week. Amen.